Good morning. We're going to read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, this morning. And I'm going to ask that you read this with me. We're going to read the first nine verses here, and then I'll weave the rest of this passage into the message. Here's the Gospel. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat on it out on a lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray for a moment. God, our Father, we thank you for this morning that we can come here and gather in a safe place to praise your name, to lift up our prayers, to learn a bit from your word, or to be reminded of things that we've already studied and know, but need to grow even deeper into our hearts and minds. Thank you for the way that you coach us during these times when we gather together and we we put everything else to silence for an hour or so in order to think about you, to meditate on truth, to be in the company of those who love you and are finding you. Our prayer this morning is that you will grant us the wisdom we need for whatever is coming this week. You know the challenges that each person and each family faces, whether those are changes in life situations or jobs or whether there are hard decisions that must be made. Grant us wisdom. Grant us an understanding of your truth and your ways. Give us a nudge from your spirit one way or another in regard to whatever it is that you want us to do next or how us how you want us to respond, or who you want us to reach out to. We think of the one person that we've been praying about most for each of us as individuals, that friend who is going through a hard time or who's wandered away from faith or the friend who needs to discover Jesus for the first time. As we remind you of their names, Lord, silently, we pray right now that you administer in each of their lives, that you put someone in their path who can encourage or provide the next piece of wisdom, however you want to prompt us to say a word or to befriend or to serve in silence, let us know what that next step is. Lord, guide us as we serve as a church. We pray for our neighbors around here 
people in Pembroke and Marshfield and all the towns that touch this area, the seven or eight towns or so that are touched by the North River, the 30 or so towns and communities that seem to be a part of this fellowship Sunday after Sunday. Wherever we go, we pray that you will continue to shape us and send us as your emissaries, your representatives into each of these locales. We ask that you will bless our neighbors and that you will use each and every one of us in the right time and the right way to bring a word of wisdom, a word of truth, to pray for somebody, to lift them up, to encourage, to help, or to provide a healing word. And Lord, we ask that you would guide us in so many ways that are beyond our understanding. Thank you that you understand what's going on inside of us when we're caught up in worship like a few moments ago. Thank you for our friends with autism who cry out their prayers and their cries in worship, even though we may not understand the specifics. We understand the cry of the heart. Thank you for giving us the openness to want to embrace those who are different in our midst. Keep teaching us, Lord, new lessons guided by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. It is common to harbor great hopes in small things. Like the person who buys an old painting in a flea market only to take it home and find one of the, the world's greatest masterpieces on the back of an otherwise worthless painting. Most of the stories that we read about situations like this turn out to be urban legends. However, this one happens to be true. In 1989, a financial analyst bought an old painting at a flea market in Adamstown, Pennsylvania for $4. He brought the, bought this painting and brought it home, and he bought it because there was an old country scene on it that he didn't really care about, but as he looked at the frame, he really liked the frame around the painting and thought, that's worth four bucks. Later, as he was investigating a small tear that he noticed in the canvas, the frame began to fall apart in his hands and it revealed a folded copy of a document that was hidden behind the painting. The document turned out to be an old copy of the Declaration of Independence. He had found something great and valuable in something that was small and essentially worthless. He consulted a friend who collected Civil War artifacts and the friend told this financial analyst that he should have this thing appraised immediately. When he did, he found that this document was, quote, a rare original Dunlap broadside, one of 500 official copies from the first printing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. Up until that time, only 23 of these official 500 copies were even known to exist, with only two of them being held in private ownership. It was printed on July 4th, 1776, by John Dunlap in order to get the news of the Declaration out from Philadelphia and to the rest of the 13 American colonies. Think of the significance of that document. Soon this official copy of the Declaration was put up for auction. The sale exceeded Sotheby's estimated value, which was placed somewhere between $800,000 and $1.2 million, and it sold for $2.42 million. That's a pretty good return on investment, isn't it, for a $4 outlay to get $2.42 million back. 
David Redden, who was the auctioneer that day, reported that the man who had found this document in this dismal painting that he bought for $4 because he liked the frame was stunned to learn how much the document had sold for. Then a mere 11 years later, in June of 2000, it was put up for sale again, and television producer Norman Lear purchased it, this time for $8.14 million. Think of that, this incredibly valuable document hidden away, buried in the back of a frame of a worthless painting in a flea market, and if it hadn't sold, it was probably going to be thrown out. Jesus was a master of seeing the great in the small. That's what this little video was about. He needed his disciples to understand this principle. He wants us to understand this principle too. Soon the disciples would see that a boy's lunch could feed 5,000, that a child's faith is all that it takes to enter the kingdom of God, that an unbroken colt of a donkey, the, the runt of the litter, so to speak, was more fitting than the tallest white stallion for this kingdom's prince. That the faithfulness of 12 disciples could establish a church that would impact every nation across the face of the earth. That one Messiah's suffering could cover the sins of the world. Jesus was a master of seeing the great in the small. So when he wanted his disciples to understand about the growth of the kingdom of God, Jesus told them a simple parable about a farmer who went out to sow seed in a field. He doesn't even tell us what kind of seed. He leaves it up to the imagination. This morning is week four in our journey with Jesus. In this series, we're blasting our way through the Gospel of Mark, taking one chapter a week from the beginning of January through Easter Sunday. So if you're new to North River, come along this journey with us. You can catch up real fast. Today, our focus is on Mark chapter 4, taking a central concept from that chapter in order to take a look at the whole of, of what's in that chapter. There are four challenges that I'd like to present to you that rise out of this parable of the sower and the seeds. And I want us to ask, as we're thinking it through, what does Jesus want us to do with this parable? How does he want us to respond? What's the next step that we take once we understand the meaning of the parable? The first challenge is to listen. Verse 9 picks this up. It's the the end of, of the parable, and then moving forward a little bit more into Jesus' explanation. Here, Jesus ended the parable by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. He went on, the gospel goes on to say, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, Everything is said in parables so that, and here he's quoting from Isaiah, they may be ever see seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Notice, first of all, the repeated challenges to listen carefully. Jesus began this parable by saying, listen. Uh, the version that we use here on Sunday mornings has listen with an exclamation point right after it. And then he ends the parable by saying, 
Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. That is two very distinctly different ways of saying, listen carefully. Make sure your ears are working, that you are paying attention to what's in this parable. Whenever Jesus does something like this, he's trying to capture our attention, and he's trying to point out a problem. The problem is accentuated by Jesus' reason for teaching the parables. The disciples want to know why he puts everything in parables. And he tells them that the secret of the kingdom has been given to them. What's the secret? The secret is identified as the word that would be preached. And the central feature of the word is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that he has come as the Messiah whom God had promised so long ago. Jesus uses the same word, mysterion, which can mean mystery, to describe this secret It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians when he talks about the secret of the ages that now people have been led into, this open secret. It speaks of something that was once hidden but is now known and open to the world or at least those of faith whose ears are open and whose hearts are open to receive it. Yet to those who reject the news that Jesus is God in the flesh, that Jesus is God come near, this still remains hidden for they rejected the key to unpacking the parable. From the beginning, Jesus has been proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near. But many people, some even in the crowds that were clamoring around him, so many that on this day he had to climb out in a boat and push it out a little ways in order to get away from the crowd that was pressing in so tightly. Even in the midst of that crowd, there were some who rejected what he was saying. In chapter 3, we're told that the Herodians and the Pharisees were already beginning to plot how they would get rid of him and how they would kill him. And yet, Jesus was teaching them too. The hearts of those people had been hardened to the gospel. Their hearts had become unapproachable, and their ears were unhearing, and their eyes were unseeing, at least in regard to spiritual things. So the prophecy from Isaiah 6 that Jesus was quoting was now being fulfilled in his presence as some were turning away. And as soon as he began to tell this simple parable, they thought, oh, here he goes again. He's going to tell us a story about some dumb farmer. Who wants to listen to this? And they began to tune Jesus out. The first challenge is for us to listen, to listen well. He tells us twice, listen, if you have ears, Let them hear. The second challenge is to sow as much as we can, to sow as much seed as we can. Verse 13 picks this up. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable if you don't understand this one? As if to say, I thought this was pretty basic. And so he begins to explain in verse 14, the farmer sows the word. Notice the simple way that Jesus begins here in his explanation. Just this simple description that unlocks the whole thing. The farmer sows the word. A natural question arises. Why would a farmer sow seed all over the place so that some of it falls not only in the field where the soil is good, but where some of it falls on the hard pathway that's the roadway between different uh, pastures, some of it falls in the, in the rocky ground, some of it falls 
in the midst of the thorns and the thistles where they're all going to grow up? Isn't he wasting seed? Indiana pastor Jeff Strite talks about visiting Jesus' hometown in Nazareth. And he noted that farmers who had large plots of farmland down in the valleys closer to the Sea of Galilee could become very, very wealthy off of this rich farmland. But what caught his eye was up in Nazareth, which was in the hill country, and there were remnants of small terraced farms built into the hillside all around Nazareth. He noted that these farms, as they were called, were little bigger than the good-sized gardens you might have in your own backyard. So the farmer would sow seed over every square inch of this little plot of land that he had control of. So much so that he didn't want to waste an inch of it, and some of the seed would spill over onto the hard pathways and even into the areas where there was little hope of any grain or, or wheat or whatever he was planting to grow up well. He wanted to make the use of everything. Another natural question follows. How do the disciples understand this concept of the word? As Jesus begins to unlock the parable, the, the farmer sows the word. The answer to that question can be found in the context of the first couple of chapters that we've already looked at in this series. When Jesus began preaching, there were three themes that he centered in on. And the successive chapters tell us that he went from town by town, village to village, preaching the same themes. The time has come. In other words, God is doing something right now in our midst. The kingdom of God has come near, which is central to the identity of Jesus. You think of that title that he was given, Emmanuel, God with us. And the third was the challenge to repent and believe the good news. Repent, again, doesn't mean grovel. It doesn't mean that we need to think the worst of ourselves. Repent literally means to have a change of thinking that results in a change of direction in our lives. Repentance is saying, I've been on the wrong path. I'm going to abandon that path. I'm going to get on the right path. It doesn't mean you have to clean up your life perfectly before you can come to God. That has been so misunderstood through the ages. Another feature of the parable then reinforces that point. The seed that the farmer sows falls in four places. On the hard path, on the rocky ground, on the thorny ground, and finally in the good soil. So if Jesus, if even Jesus realized that much of the seed would never grow deep roots, we need to sow an awful lot of seed to advance the kingdom. Think of the way that this applies to our context and the world that we face here. We can share the gospel with lots and lots of people, but knowing that there are people who will be naturally hardened to this at any given time because their lives fit more of the descriptions we're going to go into of the rocky soil and the thorny soil. Some of the seed is just going to fall on that hard ground and bounce off. It's not going to take root. So for you and I to have an impact in our society, our society, we need to sow an awful lot of seed wherever we can. The word of the gospel, the word of the good news. Somebody has to tell people that since Jesus has come, the secret is now out. Have you heard about the explosion of Christian faith that's going on in Iran these days? I want to give you a challenge this afternoon, not, not right now on your cell phone, but Google the words uh, revival in Iran and just watch what comes up. 
there are some powerful videos of the underground churches that are beginning to grow as younger people, 30 and under, who've grown up in the last 30 years under the, the leadership of the mullahs and the corruption of what's happened in Iran are reaching out to find Jesus. Of course, you know, they're going to be tortured if, if they're caught, right? But these younger people are telling their friends, and they don't have churches, they don't have formal organizations that way. Much of these movements are often led by women who fearlessly are praying for their friends and are sharing their stories of meeting Jesus. There are accounts of many people, not just a few, but many, who are hearing from Jesus in dreams, almost like we read of the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, hearing the Lord call out to him. And they're not going to the mosque. They're going to these hidden gatherings where worship breaks out, where you almost have to have like a secret invitation to get into the meeting. And there, there are videos of, of these Iranis who are praising God and singing hallelujahs that you would understand in any other language. Because once the secret is out, there's no way to hold it back. The first challenge is to listen. The second challenge is to sow as much seed as we can, wherever we can, as often as we can. Here's the third challenge that rises out of this parable. Don't let anything stop your growth. So we go deeper into Jesus' explanation. Verse 14 starts it. The farmer sows the word, and now he adds more. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires, of, uh, desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Jesus explains why some of the seed never takes root. Seed that falls on the hard path refers to those who become hard-hearted toward the gospel. As soon as they hear it, they turn it off and they begin to walk away. Seed that falls on the rocky ground pictures those who have shallow hearts, if you will, they hear the gospel, but ultimately they want a God who does what they want, not a God who calls us into his mission. And they get disillusioned along the way. So when the going gets tough, they move on. The third kind of ground that Jesus describes is seed that, or the third area where the seed falls is into the thorny ground, and it refers to those who are consumed with the selfish desires of our time. And Jesus says that the cares of the word, of the world rather, choke out the word, the gospel, the good news. In other words, they get so preoccupied with everything else that's good and they're concerned with having everything else that they no longer prioritize pursuing, understanding, or living out the words that bring freedom in life. Notice also that Jesus brings Satan into the picture here. I'm not a guy who sees the devil behind every rock and I don't talk about him a whole lot and I don't want to give him a whole lot of credit. 
But one reason I, why I believe that there really is a Satan has to do with the way that Jesus talked about him. And this is one of those occasions. The picture that he gives is that Satan's role is to snatch away the seed that was loosely sown into the lives of people. However, you need to realize something rather than be afraid. Satan cannot take anything away that we are holding carefully. To hold on, he's saying. He's warning us here. On one hand, this is a warning to all to have ears to hear, to be on guard, to make sure that you allow the word of truth to go deeply into your mind, your heart, your life. On the other hand, Jesus was explaining why the gospel doesn't seem to take root in the lives of some of our friends, some of our neighbors, some of our family members, some of those we love most dearly, who for a short while let it in, maybe tolerate it, sing the songs, but ultimately abandon it. And it's a scary thought that that happens. Here's where I think our big idea comes in for this morning. The controlling idea of this message. Kingdom people, and that's who we are becoming. If you're following Jesus, we are recognizing that he is the king of kings. We are taught to pray that that his kingdom would come down on this earth, that the values of that kingdom would become our values that we operate by. Kingdom people allow the word of Jesus to grow deep roots, sow a lot of seed for others, and enjoy the harvest. So here's the fourth challenge. How do we learn to trust the seed? Trust the seed. Verse 20, Jesus says, in conclusion... Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Jesus challenges us to emulate the good soil rather than the thorny soil, rather than the rocky soil, rather than the hard path. The good soil here hears the word and accepts it receives it into his or her life. The good soil ends up producing a rich crop. In the small group Bible study that I'm a part of on Wednesday nights, last spring we studied parables. I had found a a video series that was about 15 years old or so that took an interesting look at the scenes behind the parables. One of those videos interviewed a farmer who was nearly 80 years old and he'd been farming his entire life. When he pulled up a clump of wheat from his field, he held it up for all to see. And there were 12 different strands, if you will. They were were early stalks of wheat that were beginning to grow. And as he held that up, he said, all of these 12 came from one seed. I thought, well, that's amazing. I've never seen something like that. I didn't realize that one seed of wheat could multiply like that. When you see something like that, you start to understand what he was talking about here. That the fruit in our lives that he's promising, if we stay long enough, if we allow it to become rooted in our lives, is capable sometimes of producing 30-fold or 60-fold or 100-fold. That if we stay the course long enough, if we are faithful long enough, God blesses what you're doing now, even in the midst of times when it seems confusing. The key concept 
is the heart that opens up and that trusts the Word of God, the seed in the parable. This is a crop that can multiply over and over and over as the Lord chooses to bless. In some ways, Jesus was repeating promises that had been made hundreds and hundreds of years ago in the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. Consider, if you will, Psalm 1. It begins this way. Blessed are those who do not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his law day and night. The law refers to the entire Old Testament in this sense. So we're meditating on his truth. We're meditating on the stories we've learned. We're meditating on the principles that we can derive from Scripture. And when we think about these things, they become part of who we are and how we act and how we talk and how we treat other people. He goes on in the next verse to say, these people, they are like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. And get this, whatever they do prospers. That's what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about promises embedded in the Psalms, in Psalm 1 in particular, and saying, this is what God longs to do over time in your life if we are faithful and we hold on to his word and we let it sink in and take deep roots rather than get distracted by all of the immediate gratifications that can take us in other directions. Now, hear me out. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is not saying, if you just trust in Jesus, you're automatically going to become rich beyond your wildest dreams. Somebody here might, and he might choose to bless us that way, but there are many ways that God can prosper your efforts. It might be your efforts at work, that he blesses the way that you're going about doing what you're doing because he's honored by how you are doing it and who you are becoming in the process. It might be that you become prosperous in terms of the impact that you have on friends through the way that you teach or you use your spiritual gift or the way that you lead in worship or the way that you work with children in the nursery and that there's some nugget of who you are and what you're doing that is being multiplied many times over in other people. There are many ways that God can prosper us. And part of what he's saying is if we hang in there if we become those people who are truly kingdom people and who operate by those principles, he will bless your life and other people will be blessed because of your faith. And the impact of what he can do over a long period of time is astounding and breathtaking. It takes patience and steadfastness to trust the, the word of God for a lifetime. Difficult times will come, but overall the blessings of the Lord will follow if you cling to his way. Three weeks ago I had the honor of, of speaking at my, uh, one of the eulogies for my father-in-law when he died, and I read Psalm 1. And it hit me as I was thinking about that day that I've been blessed by two men in my life, my own father and my father-in-law. And in both of their funerals I read Psalm 1, and I remember reading this at my dad's funeral, and I said, my dad bet the farm at 14 years of age and said that he would trust in the promises of the Bible as opposed to all the lies that he heard from the world. And my dad wasn't known by a ton of people, but when I looked at all the different things that had happened in my dad's life, 
I realized that God blessed everything that he did over time. My father-in-law grew up on a farm in, in Moline, Illinois, home of John Deere Tractor. He would have loved this parable thinking about all that. And over time, my father-in-law wasn't a famous man, but he was a common man who trusted in the principles of the Lord. And wherever he went, whether he did business nationally or internationally, God blessed what he did quietly and profoundly. And I believe that Jesus longs to bless your life and to take whatever you entrust to him, the seed, if you will, of the word that he's given you, and when you allow that to grow deeply within you, he longs to bear fruit that impacts other people in your life. Kingdom people allow the word of Jesus to grow deep roots, sow a lot of seed for others, and enjoy the harvest. Let's work toward the harvest, my friends. Father God, thank you for these powerful passages of Scripture like this one from Jesus that are so important for us to understand that it may look small today, but what you are doing within us is great in your eyes and that you are raising up an army of people here who are capable of impacting hundreds and thousands and more as we hold on to your truth and as we try to live it out as best we can, as we submit our lives to your leadership and to the direction of your Holy Spirit. And so God, I ask that you will have your way with us this week. Hear the person who may be saying, God, I barely understand this, but I want in. And here I come, doubts and all. Take that seed of faith and cause it to grow, Lord. Hear the person who may be saying, Lord, I needed to be reminded of this. I needed to be kicked in the pants today because I've been distracted by all of the other things. I want to be faithful to you. I want to see what you can do through my life over a long period of investment. And God, we will work toward that ultimate harvest, believing that you are in control. The fruit is yours. And we want to be used in the process. And so we offer you ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you're enjoying Mark because I am. Mark is intense in the way that he describes Jesus. This is the Jesus that the world needs.